1: Miles Davis was the most unique human being I'd ever been around or have ever been around in my life. One thing I tell you about Miles, whatever he told you, that's what he meant. You know, if yes was yes, no was really no. But one of the lessons that I learned from you, from our conversations was like, he would tell me things about the utilization of space. Like, don't play all the time, lay out. Let the music breathe. What you don't play is more important than what you play. When you cross a bridge, burn it. So you can't even go back to some old. And that was his, his quest was always pressing the boundaries. Uh, one day I was laughing and I said, man, well, you know, you, you play like you don't have a, a rear, view, rear view mirror. He said, yeah, I don't want to see where I passed. You know what I mean? You gotta keep going forward, don't look back. And I, and I think I tried to do that as I moved out of like avant-garde jazz uh, through my uh, pop and r and R&B and funk career. Always know what time it is and when it's time to change.
2: James M. Toomey is a legendary musician who played with Miles Davis and created Juicy Fruit, the basis of Biggie's Juicy, and so much more. He's got a lot of great stories and incredible insight from a life in music. It's James M. Toomey. On Toure Show, I
0: want to talk to you about music because you have had an incredible career in music and making some of the songs that have meant so much to so many people, um, and playing on some of the music that has meant so much to so many people. I want to build up to the Miles Davis 1970s. You
1: wanna go in there? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, because
0: that music has meant a tremendous amount to me and it spoke to me. And um, I I know you you didn't play on Bitches Brew, but that album meant a lot to me and led me into uh, On The Corner corner. and Big Fun and Dark Magus and some of the other ones that you played on that represent this whole different controversial era for miles, right? But let me let me build into that because uh, miles is, is the zenith. But just let's let's go back to just just falling in love with music. What were some of the key experiences early in your life, and some of the key songs or singers that helped you first fall in love with music? To say I, I want to be part of that,
1: right? Well, for me, uh, I, I was uh, very very fortunate to have. Uh, a combination of musical influences when I was growing up. Uh, I, I grew up in a jazz household. So jazz was played 24-7. And if your you know dad, what out, your jazz dad, musicians- Your jazz dad music- is a legendary player. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. J- Jimmy Heath uh, of the Heath brothers, uh, Percy and Tootie. And, uh, but I was raised by another great uh, jazz musician named James Hengage Foreman, who was a, a keyboard player. So there was always a Steinway in the house, so. I was listening, I'd be listening to jazz. And, and as I was saying, jazz purists, it was almost like growing up in a gospel household, playing r but it was like, hey, hey, you know, back well, back then. So I had the experience of growing up listening to Miles, listening to uh, Coltrane, all, matter of fact, not just listening, a lot of times they would be at the house, you know, but wow. I met Miles later, but I'm saying the caliber of musicians, like Dizzy Gillespie would be at the house, Thelonious Monk, uh, <laughs> Sonny Rollins would come by. Oh yeah, <laughs> he got the shirt off. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was that level, you know. Now, I, I would never sit here and say, as a ten year old kid, I really understood what was going on. Of, of I was always fascinated, Turek, by the conversations. when I would hear them talk about, creating sound and what chords work and why that chord would work, and I absorbed that. Now, at the same time. I'm growing up during the birth of R&B. Frankie Lyman, Fast Domino, Little Richard, that's what was happening. So I was into, and and I I had combined both worlds. So I would listen to R&B, and then even though I was only, by the time I was 14, I was going to the clubs because they knew me, you know, I could get like a a soda. But I'd go there to hear people like uh, Youssef Latif, you know me, Ahmed Jamal. So that was my musical upbringing. Okay, the balance was so, as I realized later, as I got older, what a hell of a, a, a confluence of, uh, you know, uh, of ear exposure to that kind of sound. You play a lot of instruments.
0: You, you played percussion on a lot of amazing uh, records, but you, you play keyboards as well. Yeah, what were the, what was the first instrument that you that you mastered, and then how did you start branching out
1: into other instruments? I think that's a word I have to bow out of uh <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I never ma- I never mastered, but the first instrument that I became somewhat accomplished on is, is the keyboards the, the piano and uh then I moved towards the percussion
0: okay okay do they do they inform
1: each other because they seem to me to be Excellent different classes. no no actually they're more the same than they are separate. The piano is actually uh listed as a percussive instrument. Okay. If you look up what what, like you have reeds, you have brass. The piano is considered a percussive instrument. So for me, why it was advantageous because because I played piano, I always heard melody and chords. And then when I played the congas, I transposed that. I tuned my drums so I could play different chords with the rhythm. So I always heard rhythm and melody at the same time, which was a, a gift that I was very fortunate to acquire.
0: hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center black voices turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced and as black as we are stories should never be about us, without us listen now to black stories, black truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts
2: influencer, it's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days there is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen.
0: I mean, I know when I went to Africa. And I saw drum circles, mm. and I see people playing uh, 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 the the djembes and making different tones out absolutely. of them. Absolutely. That there is tremendous
1: melody within rhythm, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So when you when you take you know because I'm dealing with melody in songs and chord structure with the piano, as I said earlier, transposing that to a rhythm. You can hear, it's like the totality of, of, of what's
0: going on around you. So um, in terms of the chronology of your career, I may end up going backwards, but I want to lead up to Miles, but go into some of the songs that people uh, know you for. Yes, sir. Or, or may not realize that they know you for, but they know, um, uh, you know. And Juicy Fruit is an incredibly important record that everybody in my generation knows right um talk about writing that and talk about creating that because i know the writing process may be different than when you get in the studio and ma- right because it has to be a moment of magic right when you're in the studio to have it come out right, right. so and you know and i imagine at that time you guys are were you guys playing the song okay. live great, at- great or- question
1: uh juicy game about we had actually finished the album. Uh, we, I had just finished cutting what I what It's, I it's so
0: typical that the best song in the album <laughs> is the last <laughs> song of the album. hear that all the time.
1: And I said, uh, wow, I said, "I think we need one more song. The band had already gone home. It was about one in the morning. And I happened to look over. And at this time, Black music wasn't using drum machines. You know, the R&B gets and everything was acoustic. This is what year? Uh, Nineteen eighty-three. Okay. And uh, I asked the engineer to hook it up, and I messed around with it for about twenty minutes and came up with, you know, that beat. Worked on some chords. I called the band. They came back, got out of bed. I think we laid it down in about an hour, hour and a half. Tawatha, our lead singer, was in Europe. She was on the road with Roxy Music. I called her. She had two days off. I flew her from England. She came in, sang the uh, the lead. As a matter of fact, as she was singing one verse, I was writing the next. Everything was, right, like, yeah, yeah. I, I talk about pressure, you know. She's singing the verse, I'm writing the next. She finished, uh, got on a plane the next morning, went back to uh, to, to England, mixed it, took it to uh, Epic. They refused to release it. <laughs> Why? Well, first of all. It was, I want. I want to give you the direct quote. It was too different. We don't know if it's a ballad. It's not an up tempo. In other words, you know how people handle something that, that that that's new that they haven't heard. You either adjust your vocabulary to digest what it is and create a new a, a, a new definition, new paradigm. Yeah. yeah. Or you reject it because you know you don't you don't have the language for. It. I mean. I mean. It is.
0: I I see the point in that. It is. A neither nor. It's not a ballad, but it's not an up tempo. Do we dance to it? Do we
1: groove to Like what? What do we do with this record? Right, right. <laughs> so they, uh, the 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 president, uh, we had a meeting, and uh, he told me, "I tell you what, Jimmy, I'll give you a new budget, but I want you to go in the studio with another producer." And I said, "Well, you know, you know what you can do with that." <laughs> so I kept pressing and banging and banging. So they said, okay, because
0: you believed because you
1: believed in the record, you knew I, I you knew it. you had something. This, so right, this is what I believe. I'm not sure what this is either, but I know one thing. I think it'll do something very, very interesting or nothing. I knew it was it wasn't a record that you could be either or about. You know, you hear that, you right, love it or you like it, right. or you or you dismiss it, and then that's the advantage of something being different. You know, and uh, so. They said, okay, to keep me quiet, we're only gonna release it, we will release it, but only for Quiet Storm uh, formats, you know, at 12 o'clock at night.
2: After but it's good for
1: Quiet week, Storm. Right, but not for re- daytime. You know, plus at that time, uh, the, the lyric, you can lick me everywhere, that was so risque. I mean, it's nothing now, you know. But back then, right, right. you know, they were like, look, the language and the, we don't, we don't know what this is at all. We don't, the, the words, the, 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 the tempo, so we're going to just release the record quite quiet storm. After one week, they were getting so many calls from Black Radio that they were forced to release it, you know, for day daytime play also. And uh, that's how the, the record was birthed. It was it was I mean, rejected.
0: The 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 keyboard line on that record is really fruitful and it really sucks you in, right? Talk about that line because it kind of and like the 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 lindrum the bass line is very consistent but the keyboard line kind of floats around a little bit
1: here's how i use uh, actually that's a very astute observation i was dealing with uh at that time developing what i call neo-minimalism like okay. taking less instruments but mixing them and placing them so they sounded really huge because Juicy Food is only like like four instruments, but it just sounds so big. Uh, the bass line... That, there's is the drum. there's a keyboard. You got the guitar. Yeah. Uh, you got the bass. Yeah. What else?
0: <laughs> and then the keyboard and then the singer. That's just yeah, that. Yeah, that's
1: it. Yeah. I mean, a, a couple of different kinds of synth sounds, you know, in the keyboard, but then sure. basically a keyboard, you know. Yeah. Uh, what was that, man? Oh, oh the bass line. The bass line is not a typical bass line. Yeah. <laughs> That's more like a, a guitar line. A guitar yeah. can play that. But I made that the bass line. So nothing comes on you like this. Everything's kind of floating around. The beat is <laughs> So So you got this African sensibility happening with all these pretty colors. And a, an extraordinary vocal performance, and it worked.
0: Mm. And I mean, the singer's performance. Oh, it's, it's very powerful. Yes. And without like trying to knock you down, you know, she comes in like an instrument rather than dominating like a singer. Exactly. And, you know, but then when she comes back, here I am. I mean, like she gets big, you know, but then the chorus kind of like, it, you know, juicy, like kind of comes right, down, right, 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 as opposed to most songs. Are the other way the chorus is bigger. Um, I mean, talk about about, about how you co- did you you coached her
1: through the performance you wanted. Well, when I, I don't, say, I've never used the word coach. Any singer I work with, uh, I explain what we're shooting for, and then this is what well, this is very important to me as a, as a producer because I've worked with so many singers as a producer and a songwriter. Sometimes you forget that you're not the singer, you know, and the the melody that you hear when you give it to that singer, that may not be a, a comfortable melody for them. So you get you always leave room, you know, so you you can you can make a little shift here, you know, make a little tweak here. Uh, but that melody happened to be perfect for her uh, range, and uh, you well the rest was history. You heard the delivery, you know, she performed it magnificently. Now another thing about that album. And I always, I remind people of this. That was probably the first album ever recorded that doesn't, I have no reverb on anything, including the voice. Okay. And that's why when you hear it, if you play Juicy, it jumps in your face. No reverb. Reverb makes things float a little bit, you know? It, it, okay. it, it expands the color. Like if you're singing in the shower, that's reverb. This okay. is flat. So you're getting it exactly as it is. No makeup.
0: And that and that comes out more powerful when a lot of folks in my generation discovered that song when when Biggie Smalls took it and made that. What did you think? Because some I know sometimes jazz heads are like some of them love hip hop. Some of them are like, well, I don't know. But like, how did you
1: feel about how he took up? I knew I knew uh, uh, it was going to go down because at the time at the time I was. uh, Let me see, I was I was having a meeting with Andre Harrell about something.
2: Mm, and uh
1: great yeah and we had we we yes the late great and we had just finished and andre said oh yeah Toons could you wait a minute i want you to meet the uh, puffy wanted to talk to you because the puffy was working for but okay, he,
0: right, he was still at uptown right? right
1: right so puff comes in and says Toons look man i got this artist i want you to hear and uh he and he said this is biggie small biggie came in we hugged it was beautiful man and he said you know man i like to sample you know juicy Root. i said well cool. I said, we'll do a contract. We get a dollar, you get 50 cents, I get 50 cents. Or you do your own music. And uh, I would say it's the easiest deal I ever did, ever did. So you you got half of that record? Is the Pope Catholic? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, see, my position on it was this. It's like if I take your rap and put it on my song, that's not not my song anymore. It's our song. So once Biggie's going to sing on that track, and, and they didn't do anything different to the track. I mean, if they had made some kind of changes, uh, like my son uh, does the clearances, uh, we we judge what the worth of the song based on how much of the beat or how much of the song a, a rapper uses. But in that case, it was the straight up, you know, track.
0: So you did pretty good on that record, huh? Yeah, we
1: did all right. We did all right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what happened with Wrigley's gum? Oh ho, ho. man, I just, that's why I don't
1: like talking to you, man. <laughs> well, once the record hit, you know, I get a call. It's from the uh, the law firm that represented Wrigley's, some huge firm, man. I, I I don't even remember the name, and they wanted to call me in to do a deposition because. Uh, you know how that is. If if somebody thinks they got can get some money, so it's juicy fruit. But that's you can't claim. If I had made reference to gum, then they could they could go there. But there's no reference to gum. And uh, the funny food part, is, is, mean, is juicy. What, yes, it's juicy. So the funny part was, you know, we're going around in a circle. I'm sitting there, you know, and uh, I mean, I don't think anybody in there was under eighty. You know, I'm sitting there, and then. I'm waiting for because I knew the, the question that was going to come. So one of them, the, the head lawyer says, well, Mr. Matumi, um, can I can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. He said, what do you mean you can lick me everywhere? What, what, what are you talking about? I said, it's obvious, oral sex. The whole room <laughs> said, you know, everybody turned red. <laughs> Except me, I was the <laughs> only black guy there. And uh, that was the end of the deposition. They they were just trying to feel some kind of way I would make a reference to chewing or something. So that that, that went away right away. But I understood they were coming at me. (laughs) So in your mind, the whole song is about oral sex. No. That line, obviously, is about, here's what the song is about. And I, I think you might find this interesting. I said I wanted to write three songs as a man. But through the eyes of a woman, like that kind of sensibility. And, I, and Juicy was the first one. And it was about sensuality, not, not you know, because I think women are more imaginative, you know, like candy rain coming down, taste you in my mind, spread you all around. I mean, men don't talk like that, you know? So, <laughs> you know, give me that booty, you don't know. So, so that's, that if you listen to the lyrics or read the lyrics, they're all very ethereal. But sensual, but more female than male, even though I'm a male. And the, and the, the second song was about a love triangle, that I, and that was you, me, and he. I took the love triangle uh, narrative and flipped it. I have a wife telling the husband about another dude, you, me, mm-hmm. and me. So mm-hmm. the guys went crazy on that. You know, the guys are always tell the women that. You know, baby, I was, went out to buy some shoes, I saw this chick, I fell in love, you know, I'm out of here, no. The woman tells the guy, but they work it out.
0: Now, another record that you worked on uh, that is unforgettable, um, uh, the closer I get to you, Ah, Roberta Flack, Donnie Hathaway, two of the great singers of all time. Phew. one of the great records of all time. And it has this great, delicate, minimalist yes. quality. Um, talk about making that right. Do you, you wrote that? Did you produce
1: yes. it? Yes, I wrote that. Well, actually I produced it, but I didn't know that that's what I was doing. You know, nobody said, Oh yeah, actually you should get paid for producing, you know? Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, I wrote it uh, and, along with my partner, Reggie Lucas. Uh, Did you write it for them or, or, or you wrote it and then it went to them? Like I always tell people, every song has a book, <laughs> you know, this is the actual origin of "Close I get to you. True. We were recording. I was I was with Roberta, and and so was Reggie, and Yvette Eves, uh, uh, you know, D Train, and we were recording this album, "Blue Lights in the Basement." And uh, you know, I, frankly, I was getting kind of bored. And but Roberta called uh, a break for dinner. Everybody was leaving. I told Reggie stay here. I got something. Uh, I, I I've been working on. Let's finish it. So I went into the piano. Sat down, you know. Boom, blee-dee-dee, doo-dee, dee, blee-dee-dee, dee, 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 dee. we put the B section in over and over again. So when the band came back from dinner, I gave them their parts because I wanted to record it so I could have, I, you know, see what I wanted to do with it. So when we recorded it, we were playing it back. Roberta walks in and looks at me, says, mate, what's that?" I said, "The closer I get to you, no such thing. I just felt, you know." She showed interest in something. So I just made up a phrase. It was, I had no name for it. So she said, can I record it? Absolutely. We recorded it. So then she looks at me and says, uh, well, wh- where's the lyrics? I said, oh, Ro. I left from home. I didn't know you were going to record it. So I jumped back in the back of a car, because uh, uh, I live in Jersey. We're driving back from New York, and I was writing lyrics out then. And by the next morning, I went back to Roberta's house in New York, by nine that morning and gave her the lyrics. And uh, Mm -hmm. she recorded it herself. That was the very first recording, it never came out. She recorded it and she played it for me. And I said, you know, Robert, it's cool, but you know what I think would be interesting? You and Donnie getting back together. Because they hadn't done anything since, I think, Where's the Love, you know, back in that period. So she said, well, I don't know too, you know, because Donnie was having a lot of emotional challenges. And, uh, well, anyway, one day she called me. She said, can you come over to the house? I said, yeah. She lived in uh, the the Dakota building with John, with the same building that John Lennon was in. So I go in, I go in, standing in the middle of the room is Donnie Hathaway. I sit down and play the song for him. He asked me to move over, played it back to me exactly the way I played it. I mean, mm-hmm. for now it's like, you know, photographic, same, mm-hmm. four changes and versions, you know, cause he was a genius. And, uh, We went in and cut it, you know, and and, uh, the rest is history. I mean, that's how that's that's how. Oh, I got one. I'm sorry. I got to add this to it. This is the last chapter in that book. So they're having a listening party. You know, back in the day, we used to really have those. And uh, she invited me. In comes Ahmed Erdogan, who was the president of Atlantic. Legendary record man. Yes. So he's going to listen to the album. I'm sitting there. She introduces me. I don't even. I, she never, she never, didn't even say, well, you know, he wrote one of them. It was just like, oh yeah, this is him too man So I'm sitting there, you know, they play the entire album, Ture. And then Ahmed Erdogan says, I love everything on the album, but that song, The Closer I Get to You. It's what? On my, on my Mother's Grave. He said, what? it's boring and repetitious. <laughs> and I, to this day, I will always credit Roberta. Roberta fought, I mean, they argued to keep that, she, she argued to keep that song on the album. So they go. It, it got so loud, they went out in the hallway. They left the store, and you could hear them. Yeah. She said, no, I gotta have it on. So he comes back in and says, okay, it can stay on. But here's the clinker. He says, yeah, but it'll never be a single. <laughs> so, so once put- again,
0: the artists and the executives right, clashing right. and the artists understanding what needs to happen. And the executives, even Armin Erdogan is, is not a typical suit. He was a record man with ears, right? right he was yeah. supposed to be
1: able to hear so the music, across, so expect more from him. Yeah. But look, look, I got, look, every, almost every song that I've done that did something, I, I, I it, there's a story where I caught flat, you know, but that,
0: that now, was that the the interesting interesting thing with that one because a lot of records it, it kind of it's it it starts with the chorus it starts with the name of the song the, fir, the key line of the song the closer I get right. to a lot of songs build up to that moment, right. and I noticed beyonce and certain people, very few people start with the chorus right. and then when you're sixty seconds into the song, you're hearing the chorus for the second time, and you're like caught up in right. it rather than hearing it for the first time at 45 seconds.
1: But That's a great, great observation. One of the reasons for that is because I, w- I wanted to do a ballad that was different than the regular ballad. And if you notice, there's no strings. It's all synthesizers, you know, different kinds of colors. And uh, the hook works and the, 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 the chorus works because... The melody matches what's being played on the keyboard. Bing, be, bing, bing, boom, bing, bing, bing. So it makes it even more haunting. The closer I get, that's those notes are being played on the keyboard to 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 reinforce it. But uh, it was a very different kind of ballad, and I think some of that has to do where I think I, I found myself bringing some of my jazz influence into R and B yep. with yep. the chord because those kind of chords weren't really being used quite like that, you know.
0: I did a poll on uh, Twitter a few years ago, and I Uh asked my people, greatest male singer of all time, and Donny Hathaway won. And I thought that was very astute of my community to put him up there. Big up there.
1: And the the sad part about Donny, I'm glad you brought that up. I can't stand the fact that he's been reduced to a footnote. You know what I mean? Mm. He was everybody's favorite singer, Stevie, mm. everybody. I mean, I, I I remember when I was doing. Uh, uh, Close the door. Uh, uh, so many cats and <laughs> women, people I've worked with. Uh, from Philadelphia International. Teddy Pendergrass and me and Teddy got mm. to talk about it.
0: What does eating healthy mean to you? Dot com slash torre. thrivemarket.com slash torre.
2: On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You know, talking about Donnie, and he's like, oh, I remember my conversations with Stevie, Donnie, everybody. But what's been done on Donnie? I mean, I haven't seen a good documentary on him. Mm. You know, so he, he's been pushed aside, oh. but he was everybody's singer. And nobody you sounds mean, like that, but his daughter. I mean, you know. You're laying down a
0: challenge because, you know, I'm I'm feeling you. So uh, I want to go through one more classic record before we get to Miles. um, Because you could could talk 30 minutes on each record, which I love. I love. love. Um, uh, Stephanie Mills, one of the great singers of her era. Never knew love like this before. Yes. You know, one of the great, great songs of that era. You wrote that. Thank you
1: very much. Yes. You produced that. Yes. By that time... I was producing. I mean, I knew what it was. You know, when you first getting in the game, remember I started off as a musician. Then I'm a band. I'm a. I'm a band member with Roberta. Now I'm starting to write. I didn't know what producing was, even though I was doing it. You know, so by the time step the Stephanie Mills project came out, came uh, was presented to me. The first album was uh what you gonna do with my loving, and uh, mm. never knew love was the second album, but, that was that was a production, yeah. So
0: talk about making that record, and I was wonder if when you have a talent the level of Stephanie, it becomes like just get out of her way because <laughs> she can she yeah. you know, she she can dunk on everybody because the voice, the quality of the sound, to she's extraordinary day.
1: to this day. You know, she still sings all those songs in the same key live. Mm. Well, let me let, let me say this. Uh, but when, when Stephanie, Stephanie was a challenge and, and, and not musically. The first thing uh, uh, when uh, we met and I was talking to her about the kinds of songs that I thought we could shape because Stephanie had done an album before What You're Gonna Do With My Lovely. Most people don't know that. And it was written and produced by two of my heroes, Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Mm. And it bombed. But I had to figure out what am I going to do? You know <laughs> uh, uh, that's going to be different. So I realized that when I listened to the album they did. I think it was on Motown. They wrote and produced her like she was Dion, and Stephanie's not Dion. Mm. Stephanie is her soul is chopped Dion Warwick. Yeah, Dion Warwick. Yes, yeah. and you know because Backwreck and David did all of her stuff, and so when they got Stephanie, they, they, it, it was all like they had a mold, they had a formula, but she didn't fit in that formula. So. When we started writing, I said, "Oh, this this is what we can this is what we can find out." And then Stephanie told me, when we met, she said, "Um, oh, too, May, uh, I love the ideas, but I, I'm telling you now, I can't sing any songs about love, because she was a devout. Uh, I think uh, I forgot what, what what religion she was dealing with, but she couldn't sing anything about love. So I pulled out a, a billboard and gave it opened up the top 100." I said, show me five songs in there that aren't about love in the top one. Right. And she looked at me and she said, Oh, I get your point. And uh, so then, you know, the rest, again, it was history. We cut, What You Gonna Do With My Loving? And uh, that had another song that grew up in the clubs because the clubs were starting to get big then. And, uh, put your body in it. Um, okay. So we got about a half hour
0: left. It's not enough time. <laughs> it's not enough time because I want to hear. Well, maybe I'm talking too much. About no, now. not at all, not at all. Bring the bring the fuck. I want to hear all the smoke, all the stories, all the insight. Because Miles Davis in sure. the early 70s was on his third time reinventing music. You were right there, I part did, of On the Corner, Big Fun, Dark Magus, other albums that are part of the, that 70s period that is controversial. Yeah. Some people don't like that stuff. Some people do love it. I love it. What, what was he trying to do in that period? Well,
1: I can tell you what he was shooting for. I mean, cause we, you know, well, first of all, we were very close. I was with him for five years, but in, in addition to that, not only was he my mentor, but also it was like a father's son kind of thing, you know? And, uh, how much older was he? You know I, I, I think I was 23 Miles was 40 something you know
0: okay so but yeah, I, I, yeah. paternal yeah. yeah
1: yeah and and he seemed older what was he what was he like just what was he like to be around man you said you only got a half hour <laughs> Miles Davis was the most unique human being I'd ever been around or have ever been around in my life one thing I tell you about Miles whatever he told you that's what he meant you know if yes was yes No was really no. But one of the lessons that I learned from, from our conversations was like, he would tell me things about the utilization of space. Like don't, don't play all the time, lay out. Let let the music breathe. Uh, What you don't play is more important than what you play. When you cross a bridge, burn it. So you can't even go back to something old. And that was his, his quest was always pressing the boundaries. Uh, one day I was laughing. I said, "Man, well, you know, you you play like you don't have a, a rear rearview rear view mirror." He said, "Yeah, I don't want to see where I've passed. You know, what I mean? gotta keep going forward. Don't look back." And I, and I think I tried to do that as I moved out of like avant garde jazz uh, and through my uh, pop and 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 funk career. Always know what time it is and when it's time to change. See, people get stuck in the quicksand of sameness. You know. You come, you go, same thing. I can hear, I heard this 10 years ago. I buy you a new album. It sounds like the old album in a new package. But always move forward. And what he was shooting for was this combination of, of musicians that could bring forth this new equation that required people rethinking. I'll give you a story. We played uh the first time we that band was seen live was at Lincoln Center. And I remember I was in this dressing room when this uh, uh, quote unquote jazz critic came in and he was like, oh, Miles, Miles, man, I've been with you every time you change. I I was there with you. He said, man, but I just don't know where you're at right now. And Miles looked at him and he said, so what the fuck am I supposed to do? Wait for you to get here? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, which which makes perfect sense, right? What do you tell me? if 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 you can't get to where I'm at, I can't wait for you. Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. So 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 what was he trying to do in that early 70s period? Has he he changed to something electric, more rhythmic, you know, totally different than the jazz that we had loved of him in the
1: sixties? What was he trying to do? He was trying to forge a music. That's a great question. I don't know if this is a great answer, but this is the true answer. He was trying to forge a music and a formula and a, mu- uh, a group of musicians that c- c- could create a new aesthetic, which is the word he told me. A new aesthetic, and you know how that is. Some people he heard it, and they answered, man. I want to hear around midnight, man. I don't. What are you doing? You know. But his whole thing, a new aesthetic. He said, "I can't play like that anymore." You know. Look, this cat was playing with a yy fifty on the trumpet. I haven't seen that yet, and, and I'm talking about. And when I joined the band in 71, so everything was this, you know, far ahead. And I always make this observation. When Miles was playing acoustic jazz with the trumpet, you know, Kinda Blue and all that, he had a direct influence on jazz to record. But when he went electronic with that sound that none of us had ever heard. When I heard Bitches Brew, I almost fell out of bed, man. I said, what? <laughs> and then I got the cover. I said, oh my God, look at this cover. But what he wanted people to do is not be able to rely on old cliches. He, uh, he always told me he said cliches are death traps. He said whatever kind of art you do it, a painter, you're a writer, you know you don't use cliches because you know they work. He said use something else. Don't go down that same street. Go down a different street to get to your house. You discover something. So that was his thing: discovery and and creating a new musical vocabulary. And that was one of the big challenges. To the uh, jazz critics, they didn't have a vocabulary to, to explain it. It wasn't jazz, okay? So what is it? But they weren't humble enough to ask us.
0: We could have mean There's there. Well, if you say it wasn't jazz, what was it?
1: It was the future. Mm. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's necessary to put a word on the future.
0: True. I True. mean,
1: the future is a concept. You know, and uh, we had a destination of trying to get to a new planet, musically. I mean, there's
0: a fearlessness. Because you oh, see man. A, lot of, a lot of artists, you know, people like this. You could keep doing that and keep getting paid. And you just try to out something new, they might not like it. And
1: a lot of people didn't like it. Oh, oh man, we got castigated, man. <laughs> it, the funniest thing to me now, and I always say I thank God for YouTube. Because when YouTube came along, Young people had a chance to see that band because, you know, there's tons of clips to that band now on YouTube. And I, I would read the comments just out of my own curiosity when, when the young people would say, what were those critics talking about? This wasn't nothing, you know. And then I ultimately debated. I don't know if you saw it on YouTube, uh, Stanley Crouch on the electric period of miles, you know, and. Uh, As I say, I gave him an electric spanking, you know. (laughs) uh, You know, it it was all these guys that didn't have a reference. And because they didn't have a reference and didn't have the humility to ask what we were trying to do, they put their own thing on it and they wanted to dismiss it. But the truth is that music now is more powerful now than it was then. Because younger people get it. That electric period of miles programmatically influenced all music. I talked to Dave Matthews. He said, man, when I heard on the corner, I said, it's a new world. So Mm -hmm. everybody, Lenny Kravitz, all these, I mean, that's going on. on. Uh, Steely Dan, we talked, I mean, we talked, and they were like, man, when we heard that music, and first of all, he said it scared us to death because what is this? I mean, imagine that. Everybody plays music. What does it take for somebody to create something where you can sit back and say, what is this? But I know this is something different, but you don't have a word for it yet.
0: Uh-huh. The
1: definition is in the pursuit.
0: You were playing percussion in yes, other sir. albums. Um what was Miles encouraging or teaching you to do to get into the the mix the way he wanted you to be?
1: Uh, when when Miles, uh when I joined Miles, I was playing with a uh Freddie Hubbard, and Miles came to hear me. He'd been hearing about me, you know, because I came from LA. And uh, I didn't see him that night, but, but Freddie in the, the band told me he was there. I didn't even, even know he was there to check me out. So uh, the next day or two days later, I get a call. Miles Davis. It's a true story. I hung up because me and my friend, a brother named would we everybody played the Miles Davis voice. You know, hey, this is Miles, i here. I thought it was Ndugu. The phone rings back. He said, motherfucker, I, I, I said, oh, God, yes, yeah, you. So, he said, <laughs> so he, said, he said, what are you doing for the next nine months? I said, well, what you want me to do? He said, I want you to be in my band. So when, he, when we met, I went to his house. He said, M2 may this is what I want from you. I want you to be my Tony Williams. Now, if anybody knows anything about Miles, Tony had all the... He said, I got the trap drummer. That's the regular drummer. I just want him doing two and four. I want you to lead the rhythm to change it up, to just to go. And then so he and I would go like this every night, you know, bah, and, you know and change it. And no one had ever given the conga player the, 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 the facility and the license to drive a band. And when you so listen you, to that music, you hear, you see I'm all over the place. Sometimes the bands in four, four, I might play seven against it. We had all kinds of ways of experimenting with time. So you were leading him? No, lead, lead, what we call it, leading. Never, no, not leading. You don't, you don't lead the band leader, <laughs> but leading the direction of when, it, when it felt like the time or, or the rhythm needed to change. Because the drummer basically was going. He's a great drummer, Al Foster, but that's what what Miles wanted then is just to do bat, you know, do that, and I could go, bat, blah, 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 you know, the kind of stuff Tony was doing, man, the, the intricate stuff. But he gave, he put that in the hands of the coon player, and that had never been done. Do you have because um, you guys
0: toured all over, right? So yes. you you must have some great wild Miles stories. So yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, let's hear some stories about the great Miles Davis.
1: First tour, seventy uh, one. We're playing Germany, and Miles, you know, he had to mute it. It was a ballad, and you know, you know how you could get, you get into that soft place. And he's playing a beautiful, beautiful little melody. And this, look, this guy gets right under the stage with his camera and he keeps flicking the ball, you know, and it's going off. And it's disturbing Miles. So Miles does this, you know, gives him a motion. Please move. The cat doesn't move. He continues to, to flash pictures. So Miles takes his trumpet. I'm looking at this. Unloosens uh, 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 the, the spit valve and all the spit falls on the guy. Man. And the audience applauded, you know, because he, he was a drag. He was a drag. But I, I'll give you one that's very serious. And to me, the most touching moment that I've experienced in my life about, about me, giving me a, a lesson about music. We're playing in Beirut, Lebanon. And at that time, I think that was 73. You know, they were at war with, with Israel. And so the, the president's son came to hear us. And so when he comes, it's like maybe 50, 70 soldiers, you know, armed soldiers, machine guns, you know, to, to surround them for security. We're playing and again, and the music went all the way out of space. You, you, you know, you you feed off of what you're being given. I'm looking at soldiers with, with machine guns. So after the set, we go back, it was a big tent. And we, you know, we sit back there talking about, yeah man, that was a great set. All of a sudden, we hear, ah, And the gun's being caught. First thing I'm thinking, damn, I'm gonna get it over here. You know? Then the next second, this guy busts through the tent. And the soldier's uh, uh, trying to grab me. He runs to Miles. Miles is sitting in a chair. He falls on his knees to a re- grabs his legs. He said, now I can die. And look, I'm like, what is this? Now I'm thinking, this cat got a bomb? And he starts crying. He said, man, your music saved my life. He said, I walked 50 miles to come to this concert. Now I can die. And look, wasn't a dry in the tent, man. And even Miles had a little waterfall, you know? <laughs> and that's when I realized you never know who your music is touching, man. Can mm. you imagine that? This cat broke through guards to grab him and tell him, now I can die? Because your music saved love- my life? And that's, I think that's the highest thing I can tell you about him and his effect on the world.
0: You got another, I'm sure you got another Story about him,
1: the cat okay, was, was get, crazy. This one was personal. A, a a lesson in improvisation. So, we're on tour. I take, you know, he used to, I used to close the show out. You know, the band would leave the stage. So I would take a, this solo. And I felt this particular night, it's one of the best solos I ever took, you know. And I'm a little pumped, you know, like walking off the stage. I'm like, damn, yeah, you know, standing ovation, the whole thing. And a voice comes to me in the back of my head, right right beside me, said, that wasn't shit. I I turned around (laughs) and smiled. He said, man, he said, forget all that standard ovation. He said, man, stop playing what you know. Start learning to play what you don't know. Now, first of all, I got to figure out, what does that even mean? Yeah, I've heard that from other people. What does that mean? What that means is stop playing that same way. Don't use... Again, the cliché is the trick. Like you know, go to a, if we went to a concert, you know, the singer, let's say the singer ain't really connected with the audience, so what do they do? Hit a high note. Ah, everybody goes, yay! So you do that with your instrument. As a writer, you know writers do that sometimes. You have little tricks. Stop using those. Find other tricks. Use other streets to get to that des- destination. And that's what I, be- I, I I began to understand what he was saying. You don't use what you know works. Somebody else
0: explained that to me that Prince had said that, and it was a relation to what that from Miles. that mm-hmm. Prince said the same thing to this player, a horn player, and it was a relation to what from Miles, um, that he said um that it meant, I you know, I don't pay you to play what you know, I play you to pay what you don't know, in that he wanted him to approach the the instrument as a, a beginner and and play. A, a, something original rather than go through the tricks.
1: Exactly. 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 And, uh, what you find man, is that what it does is it, it expands your palate. You have different ways of doing it rather than that one way that you know works, you know, it, it it's exploration, you know, and, uh, that, that, that was the personal story that, that cause my little bubble busted what I thought I just you know, brought the house down. But then I understood <laughs> what he was saying. Don't play that shit no more. Play. It. I wanna hear something else. You know, and, the, and I remember one time I said, I was complaining because we weren't rehearsing enough. And so after the rehearsal, he told me to stay. So he came, so the band left and I'm sitting there. And he said, man, look, I want you to understand something. I pay you to rehearse on stage. <laughs> Get to that. So, so. I pay so, you to rehearse so, in other words, I with don't want to over-rehearse. I don't want to overcook the meal. That's what he was telling me. Like, just get the structure. When you go on that stage, take it where you want. I pay you to explore on stage. I don't want to do too much rehearsing. Once we got this basic structure of the songs, that was it. We never, we didn't rehearse that much. You didn't rehearse that much. so no. um, And um, nobody who hey. ever played with Miles, they'll all tell you that. Herbie Hancock, they, all, they never rehearsed that much. He didn't believe in that. He believes in get, getting the structure, and then you fill it with your own imagination. Here's your canvas. Now you paint. So, yeah, I mean, like, is this? So, this is
0: a guy. He didn't want to rehearse himself too much, right? Like, just even was like he he wanted to under rehearse so that he could be
1: fresh. "Quote unquote." What he I, told me: I don't want to overcook the meal. And 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 that reference was. If I keep rehearsing it, then you'll you'll start playing those cliches again. You know what I mean? I want something different every night, but you gotta know the structure. Once we learn the structure of whatever the new song was, that was it. Now you fill it in. Here's your canvas. You got any paint? Then paint. But this is, here's your canvas. Because
0: you think about the guy, you know, some people reach that elite, elite, elite level of whatever, be it basketball, jazz, whatever. I mean, it's simplistic, but some people work very hard. Everybody has to work hard to get to the top. Yeah, yeah, you know, it is like, hard, yeah. It's sweat equity, and some of it is, I'm a genius, and mm-hmm. I know how to get there. Um, is it... I mean, surely it's both. But and, and is that, it really a, a triumph point. of working hard on the trumpet, or like I'm such a
1: genius? Yeah, his genius... Overlap on several levels. First of all, he went to Juilliard right. back in the 40s. That was As a young, 40s. young guy. OK, so musically, he studied all of that. Stravinsky, Ravel, all that. But he got to the point, there is a point you get to where improvisation, what you think and what you play, once you kind of master your, not master, con- get to control technically of your instrument, there's a spontaneity. You learn how to hear and play what you're hearing at the same time. There's no time differential. It's like if you listen to Coltrane, he's not thinking, oh, I'm going to C-sharp set. You just, the, 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 all that time of rehearsing and preparing and pra- practice, it becomes one. What you hear and what you play is like one thing. Miles' other genius is always knowing the right cats to have around him. If you look at every great band he had, the right Cats. He that that was his pure genius. He knew what he wanted from each person and you understood what you were supposed to do. And it was like, I mean, how how, how beautiful can that be? Mm. You're getting paid to make love to music.
0: How did it um you guys were five years? How did it end? I, yeah, I
1: was going for five. How did it end? Well, Miles got sick. Uh we were playing in uh East St. Louis and uh he got ill, you know, because you know Miles had sickle cell, and he also had a, a a hip replacement, and uh he was in a lot of pain, and when he stopped, I I be enough for, for me and Reggie and uh Michael Henderson was the bass player, we all just went off and started doing making our inroads into R and B, you know, and and producing and writing, Uh but he actually stayed off for five years, right? He never came out the house, you know. It 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 was a it was a, a, a delicate period for him. Unlike that BS movie they put out, you know, it, it wasn't like that, you know. I called that, that, that movie was Sketches and Pain. <laughs> you, 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 you talk about the Don Cheadle movie or a different? Whatever, yeah, yeah. Who I called, because I was gonna to try to do the movie. I was trying to buy the rights to the Miles Davis story. I called Don Cheadle, because he was friends with my Uncle Tootie. I talked to him on the phone, I said, would you be interested? because I thought he'd be perfect. He said, yeah, about, while we were negotiating. It was a hawk, do you know hawk Islam? He, he was a manager, he managed uh, Drew Hill, and some groups like, well, he and I were gonna do it, and and Russell wanted to be involved, Russell Simmons. And, uh, where was I? I'm telling somebody story. That's oh, the Miles movie. Yeah, the, the Miles movie. And one day, I, at that time I was doing, uh, a political talk show on uh, BLS, uh, no, it's Kiss called Open Line, and uh, one, of the, one, of the got, one of the brothers came in and, and put a paper in, in New York Times in front of me. It says Don Cheadle to star, direct, <laughs> you know, the Miles Davis movie. So he went behind my back and did that. But that made that that's, that's neither here nor there. It was a terrible movie and it was a lie. <laughs> and I hated it. <laughs> I didn't like that movie either. Thank but- you. Did you, did
0: you, um, that, that period of, I think it was like five years where he was, he was to himself. He was not being, you
1: know, were were you talking to him? Were you, were you seeing him? At that time, you know, he was, like I said, he was going through a very delicate period. And just so happened at that time, I'm starting to make inroads, you know, into what I wanted to do. So we would talk, I would talk occasionally. I think I saw Miles maybe two times during that period, and then I went to see him when he made his comeback. He played Lincoln Center, and uh, I went there, and it was me, my keyboard player Philip uh, uh, Phil, Bill Cosby, and uh, and Cicely. He was married to her the second time, and uh, we were in you know we went in the dressing room, and he played uh, Lincoln Center, yeah, and then so we hung we hung out all night, so.
0: To to a couple of things to come to an end. What do you want for your own music going forward? As you as you go forward, you know, with your own creation. What do you? You know, I, I'm sure that you're similar in that you don't want to go back. Well, like, I'm, I'm pretty know, much
1: retired from the music.
0: You know, uh, but you still make music, don't you?
1: No, no, not really. Not for yourself. No, no, no <laughs> that's a weird look you got. <laughs> I mean,
0: I would think that you even if you just do just just get on the keyboard or the percussion the drum just for yourself just to you know just because it means so much to you
1: well, it does mean and that's why I don't because it means so much. I can't play with that if I' start playing, I gotta get into it you know I'd have to put the time in. I mean, you know, cause I always tell people the music never lied to me and I never lied to the music. You know, you don't tinkle with the truth, <laughs> you know? So uh, I, I find myself being able to appreciate music more and talking to young people, answering questions, you know, cause a lot of the young cats and young sisters, uh, I mean, I talked to all of them, and Roots, all the guys, man, you know, a Q-Tip, you know? Yeah, so I, I think I'm, at, I'm 73, so my, my, my position now is: here's the baton. Here's what I know that will help you add to what you already know, and and I can learn as I'm showing you. I, I enjoy young people, man. I don't I don't deal with too many people my age, man. <laughs> what
0: uh um um what is your? I ask everybody: <clears throat> what is your superpower? What is the thing that you do better than other people? that has allowed you to have the success that you've had?
1: At the expense of being arrogant, (laughs) uh, I think, I understand the difference between appearance and appearance. Now, what do I mean by that? Something may appear to be one thing musically, but when you examine it, apparently it isn't. I'll give you an example. What's the best example of what I'm saying? Magic. You see a person doing a magic trick. He pulls a rabbit out of the hat, right? Mm. It looks like he actually did it, but when they show you the trick, he really didn't. You know what I mean? Mm. So what appeared to happen apparently didn't. So in music, is is it for me? I, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll transpose it to music. It's like I will hear a sound, and even though that sound seems like something, I've Always felt I had an ability to get to the root of what makes that sound sound like that, mm. you know. And I've never stayed still. Uh, when if you if you if you listen to the uh, the span of music, you know, I started out doing a, a, acoustic acoustic avant garde jazz. My first album was a line Land of the Blacks. I moved from that, then I go my Miles. Now, how do I get from Miles to the coast? I get to you. I mean that. What kind of leap is that? I mean, you know, but I always said creativity is like water. It takes the shape of whatever you pour it into. So the same thing I poured into jazz, I poured into funk and R&B.
2: Thanks so much to James for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre, and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garfano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhull. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday and on Friday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down.
0: We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick...